Good morning. Uh, welcome to Trinity Fellowship Church. Want to welcome those who are tuning in on the live stream as well. Um, you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. So go ahead and get there. We're going to start in verse 7. <clears throat> Judges chapter 3, verse 7. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, we just ask uh, that you would help us this morning and that you would sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. <clears throat> so this morning, uh, we are in Judges chapter 3, and we're going to start uh, with verse 7. But before we get into Judges uh, itself... I think it's really important for us to think about our context uh, because Judges 1 and Judges 2 was um, and is kind of an introduction to the book of Judges. So we're moving out of uh, kind of the introduction to Judges and we're going to kind of get like into the meat and potatoes of, of Judges. So, so let's kind of go ahead and inform our context. Uh, we need to realize uh, where we are and where we came from. Um, so we have to think about the history of Israel. Uh, Moses uh, leads the people out of bondage, right? Um, they were in bondage, and he led them out of that. But their sinfulness, uh, we, we see, and, and, and you've read, and we remember that their sinfulness brought on a different type of bondage. Uh, they had to wander in the wilderness for a generation, uh, for 40 years. Uh, then finally, under the leadership of Joshua, uh, which is the book that, that comes before Judges, um, they actually enter into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And at the end of the book of Joshua, uh, we see Joshua warning the people. And I think we, we may have looked at this and cited this in the first week uh, of, of, our, of our study in Joshua. Uh, but Joshua basically tells the people, he says, you better serve the Lord. And the people say in response, uh, they say, well, we will serve the Lord. Uh, of course we'll serve the Lord. And Joshua says, you won't, you won't do it. And, uh, and he was right. They didn't do it. And their sinfulness brought on another type of bondage. Uh, this time, uh, they didn't push all of the nations out that were in the land like God had told them to do. And now their bondage um, ultimately becomes to those other nations. And, and more importantly, they are in bondage to those nations' gods. All right. Um, we have to also think about what this term judge means. Uh, we're going through the book of Judges, uh, and, and we're going to see these people get raised up, and they're going to be called judges, uh, but they aren't like judges that we typically think of uh, in today's times. Uh, we typically think of, of judges as ministers of internal justice. But the type of judges that we see in the book of Judges, uh, they are more worried about external justice. Uh, you might think of them kind of like generals in, an ar in the army or, or like leaders or, or like princes. Um, some have called them demi-kings. However you think of them, they aren't like judges like we think of, like wearing a black robe. They are concerned with justice and the justice of, of Israel, but they operate more like a leader um, and, and more like a deliverer, right? 
Um, and, and they seek justice for the oppression of people rather than solve problems uh, within the nation. Another thing you're going to note as we go through these judges is the, 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 the quality and caliber of the judges uh, kind of downgrades over time, right? Each successive judge <clears throat> is more unlikely, more unfit, more unexpected than the last one was. And this is just part of that downward spiral uh, that we have been talking about, that, that apathy leads to apostasy, and that apostasy leads to anarchy. That's the cycle that we're going to see, and it's repeated throughout this book. These judges are raised up by God, and they uh, kind of showing this downward trend that Israel is headed on. Uh, that, that, that's what we see. And finally, um, <clears throat> before we get uh, into this text, I want to point out to you a cycle. And I actually read this in a commentary, but, but I'm, I'm going to use it. Um, there, there are a lot of different ways people have kind of laid this out and people have kind of talked about it when looking at Judges and when looking at the, the Old Testament as a whole. But I, I, I find it pretty helpful um, if we think about it in steps, and I think it's indicative for, for really the whole book of Judges. Um, it's seven steps, and, and this is what we'll see uh, throughout Judges from here on out. Step one is that Israel does evil in the sight of God, and, and we, we know they're pretty good at that. Uh, step two, the Lord gives the Israelites into the hand of the enemy. If you're taking notes, you may take down these steps. You may write down these steps. Steps, Step one is that Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord. Step two, the Lord gives the Israelites into the hand of the enemy. Step three, Israel cries out to the Lord. Step four, the Lord raises up a deliverer. Step five, the oppressing nation is overcome. Step six, there is peace or there is rest in the land. And step seven, the deliverer dies. All right? And, and, and then we just see this, this cycle repeated over and over again. So with that repeated cycle and process in place, let's take a look at these judges. And I want you to see this morning that God, in his mercy, delivers his people. And that, that's good news, right? That God, in his mercy, he delivers his people. And he often uses very unexpected ways to do that first judge in verse 7 that we're going to encounter is Othniel. Now, I'm going to say a lot of names today. I'm probably going to say them bad. I can listen to the audio of how to pronounce all these words and places and kings and names, and then I, I, I try to say it, and I just destroy it. Um, but but you'll, you, you know, you got your Bible in front of me. But this first, this first judge, uh, Othniel, his story, um, as far as the way we see judges laid out, it, it's pretty brief and straightforward. Uh, we don't learn that much about him, but I think his story does a good job of setting the framework for this cycle that we're going to see. So we're going to spend some time here with Othniel so we can understand this cycle a little bit better because it's really the key to understanding judges and it's key to understanding redemptive history. Um, verse 7, let's look at uh, Judges chapter 3, verse 7. <clears throat> and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashroth. Okay, so there's step one. 
right? Y'all with me? Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord. And in this case, how do they do it? Uh, they serve false gods that are around them. All right, let's look at verse 8. Verse 8, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and sowed them into the hand of Cushan Rishatham, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cushan Rishatham for eight years. All right, there's step two. The Lord becomes angry with Israel and sells them into the hand of the king of Mesopotamia. And now they are in bondage again. And I want you to think about this word sold. Why does it say that? Obviously, King Cushan uh, Rishatham didn't actually pay uh, the God. Of, uh, they, they didn't pay God for Israel, right? God doesn't need his money. Um, there is no money being exchanged here. It, 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 what, it's wanting, what it's intending to do is it's intending to conjure up these images of slavery or, or of bondage. You sell people into slavery. Also notice here that God is the, is the inciting force here. God puts them into, his, into this bondage. He is actually uh, the one handing the people over to this king. It wasn't the king's doing. Right? Because the people had done evil in his sight. And this might bring to mind to you Romans chapter 1 where Paul talks about our sin and how uh, at, at a certain point God hands us over to it. So God is basically saying to them here, if this is what you want to do, uh, if, if this is what you want, um, I'll show you what serving these gods really looks like. Okay, This is what these gods will give you. Emptiness and slavery, right? That's all these gods can give you. Emptiness, slavery, no hope. Verse 9, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So here in verse 9, we see steps 3 and 4 of the cycle. Step 3, the people of Israel cry out to the Lord. In other words, help us, God. All right, in step 4, the Lord raises up a deliverer. Let's focus on step 3 for a minute. Step 3, what's step 3? The people of Israel cry out to the Lord. All right, when we look at this cycle, there are only two steps in the cycle in which Israel is doing anything. The rest of the time, God is the one who is acting. And it's interesting to see the two things Israel actually does. Step two, they do evil. Step three, they cry out to God for help. All right? Does that sound familiar to you? Right? How often does our sinfulness take us to a, pl a place of pain? How often does, uh, does our sinfulness take us to a place of suffering, of bondage? And, and, and what do we do? We typically cry out to God uh, when we are in that place. We are prone to realizing our forsaking of God when we are sitting at the bottom of a pit, right? Uh, that, that has been dug with our own sin. And, and we are bound in chains by our own sin. And what do we do? We cry out to God to help us. And we know we deserve to stay in that pit. But notice here, how, how does God... How does God respond to the cries of Israel? He responds with mercy. He, he raises up a deliverer to save them. Uh, apparently, th this word deliverer in the Hebrew language is where we get the word Messiah. 
That's what I read this week. We see this word and we can read it as he raised up a Messiah for them. And so that starts making a lot more sense when you read it like that. Now, how expected would that be? After all the times the people of Israel have sinned against God, they have turned their back on him, they have worshipped the idols of the world, they have defied the commands of the Lord again and again, and God rescues them. Why would they expect for their crying out to him to result in deliverance? Right? That they shouldn't expect it, but he does. He, he does rescue them. Some, some people wrongly, I think, some people uh, say that there are two gods of the Bible. Uh, some people say that there's the mean, uh, vindictive God of the Old Testament, and they say that there is this New Testament God that is very happy, very loving, uh, very uh, quick to save. Uh, but if someone ever says that to you, because that is a popular belief out there, I hope you would point them here to the book of Judges. Uh, no matter, the, no matter the, the, the extent of Israel's continued rebellion, when the people cry out to God, he saves them again and again. So we see step four at the end of verse nine. God raises up a deliverer, and this is our first judge, Othniel. Right? And Othniel was actually introduced to us in Judges chapter one, verse 11. Um, he is Caleb's nephew, and he actually ends up marrying Caleb's daughter. Uh, I'm going to read Judges chapter 1, verse 11 for us. You can flip back there if you want. A lot of tough names in this one, though. Uh, verse 11, Judges chapter 1, verse 11. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Karath Sefer. And Caleb said, he who attacks Karath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Asak, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Asak, his daughter, for a wife. Okay, so, so notice how we're introduced to this guy uh, named Othniel. He, he is a warrior that actually gets things done. Um, in contrast to a lot of the other people we saw back in Judges 1, if you remember, who didn't do what God told them to do, Othniel goes and captures and fulfills um, his duty of driving these people out, of taking it over. Uh, th this first judge, he, he's a good judge. Uh, he's a noble guy. Most judges we see will not be like this one. Look at verse 10. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishatham, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishatham. All right. There's step five. Step five, the Lord empowers Othniel and, um, and he overcomes the king of Mesopotamia and frees Israel from this bondage. But again, uh, this is God's doing, right? This is the Lord's work. We call Othniel a deliverer. We call him a judge, but really he's just a vessel that God is choosing uh, to use to accomplish his work of deliverance. This is all God. Um, and the end of it, it, it says this. It says, the Lord gave, <clears throat> it says, the Lord gave Cushan Reshatham, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, right? Who gave him? The Lord, 
Right? The Lord did it. Verse 11. So, <clears throat> so the land had rest <clears throat> for 40 years. Then Othnel, the son of Kenaz, died. All right. There's step six and seven, if you are following along uh, with our steps. Step six. What is the result of deliverance? Rest. But uh, th that rest can't last. It doesn't last. Why? Because the idols are still there. Uh, because sin is still there. Because the good judge dies. Because the people die and their children forget. Remember, that was a constant theme we've been talking about. And so this cycle is going to continue. How long do they have rest? 40 years. Right, that's typically a generation. Um, it may seem like a long time, but that's not long at all. My granddad just turned 92 years old. Right? He, doubles, he doubles that. He's two, over two generations long. Uh, but it is long enough for someone to forget what God has done for them, obviously, and for them to go and do evil against him. So I, I hope Othniel's story really helps you see this cycle that plays out over and over again in the book of Judges. Israel does evil. <clears throat> the Lord gives the Israelites into the hand of their enemy. Israel cries out to the Lord. God raises up a deliverer. Uh, the oppressing nation that is oppressing Israel, they are overcome. There's rest in the land, and then the deliverer dies. That's our cycle. Uh, now we move on to our second judge. And in contrast to the, the sober, uh, straightforward presentation of Othniel, uh, the story of Ehud is a little more colorful and interesting. Uh, verse 12, let's read it. Let's read verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They do it again. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. Uh, that's probably Jericho, if you're wondering. <clears throat> In verse 14, And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. <clears throat> All right, here's another cycle beginning. Israel does evil. The Lord gives them over to the enemy. In this case, it's um, the Moabites. The Moabites are actually uh, distantly kin to the Israelites. If you do some Old Testament um, study, uh, these aren't just total foreigners, foreigners, uh, but it's still the enemy. Uh, they're, they're still idol worshipers who are coming to take over Israel. And notice here again, King Eglon, who's he strengthened by? He's strengthened by God. God is always the force. He does this. Um, we have to also notice the bondage actually lasts a little bit longer this time. Remember last time it was eight years. Uh, this time it's 18. And after 18 years, verse 15 says... Get, get, get to verse 15 with me. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Okay, y'all with me? There's a lot to consider here. Uh, we have steps three and four of our cycle. 
okay? Uh, people cry out to the Lord. God raises up a deliverer. But we are also given some information uh, that is odd about this deliverer. Why do they tell us that he's left-handed? Why do they tell us he's left-handed? Because, like, if you tell me, like I was talking about a basketball player yesterday uh, that used to be real good in Marion County, passed away several years ago, and they said he was left-handed. And I was like, oh, for real, I didn't know that. Or if you tell me a pitcher is left-handed, I'm like, huh, all right. Uh, but what about this guy being left-handed? All right. First, uh, for a Jewish reader, there is some irony here. It says that he is a Benjaminite. All right, and, and, and Benjamin means uh, son of my right hand, and he's left-handed. So that's kind of funny, right? Um, you know, you're left-handed, but your name means son of my right hand. You know, it's kind of funny. But, but some scholars uh, may say because he was left-handed in a right-handed culture that they pointed this out. Um, <clears throat> so in a right-handed culture, uh, and you got to think, I, I said that our cultures were similar, but they're also very different. Uh, in ancient cultures, being left-handed would have been frowned upon, all right? Being left-handed was not viewed favorably in most ancient cultures. So maybe it was mentioned because, because of that. So if, if someone was left-handed, uh, that would usually indicate uh, that they had a reason maybe that they could not use their right hand. So, so, so a lot of people believe Ehud was actually handicapped. Some people believe he was handicapped and he couldn't use his right hand. He could only use his left hand. But I think the point is... Um, you, you know, maybe, maybe, he, maybe he could have said, you know, because I can't use my right hand, I shouldn't even be able to serve. Maybe God can't use me uh, because I'm left-handed. I, I, I can't serve in, in, in the, the, the form, in the shape, in the capacity that I should. I can't deliver Israel. How can I use a sword? You know, he, he had an excuse. Maybe the text is telling us that he honestly had an excuse uh, not to be able to serve like like he, he needed to or he should have. But, but, but I think it's interesting that Ehud did not make excuses. He didn't offer an excuse. Do you ever offer an excuse uh, as to why maybe God can't use you? We are, we're prone to blame a lot. Uh, maybe our lack of gifts or our lack of skills or our circumstances or... Um, Whatever we have going on in our life, our left-handedness, maybe we use that to, to make excuses. But, but here, here's, here's what the text is also saying. God is in the business of using really messed up people. Well, he uses weak and unskilled people to accomplish his will. I mean, think about the, 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 the entire Old Testament. The, the whole Old Testament tells us that. Every guy God raises up to do something great is severely messed up. So I want to call you this morning to stop making excuses. God's called you to some sort of service. If you believe in him, if you have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, as unfit as you might be, you are called to work for him. And, and doesn't it glorify God? Uh, very much when he uses someone that is unfit, right, that is unqualified. How much glory does that bring to God? It shows that it is only through his power that this weak and flawed person can accomplish his will. So we aren't told why God chose Ehud, 
um, why Israel chose him to go and deliver this tribute to the king. But it's clear that Ehud received the call. And, and not only did he receive the call, but carefully planned his visit to this king. Even though his plan uh, of going about things was crude and treacherous, he does what he was called to do. Verse 16, And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. Okay, so now we're starting to get a glimpse here. Verse 16 shows us maybe why God would have raised up this unexpected deliverer like Ehud. Um, he makes a short um, little sword. Uh, it's, easy it's easy to conceal. Uh, it's double-edged, so it's better for stabbing rather than slicing. All right, then he conceals it on his right hip or, or, or on his right leg. In, in a culture of right-handed people, you would put the sword on your left hip, right, to draw it out, right, so for, for it to be on his right, that's kind of, you know, strategic. Um, that, that, that's where you keep a weapon. Maybe God chose him so he could get into this palace with a dagger, right? That, that's not out of God's reach to do something practical, right? But, but, but the point here is what might have been considered a handicap uh, for this guy, it, it's actually the tool that God uses to accomplish deliverance, all right? Verse 17, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. I told you it was colorful. Um, why in the world does the author put that there? The, the, I think there's a few reasons. Fatness in ancient cultures point to uh, someone that's living a luxurious life, right? Someone that's, that's living high on the hog. Someone that's living it up. They're living the good life. They're eating good. Uh, most people who were working to get food couldn't get fat, right? They're working so hard. They're sweating it off. You know, whatever they eat, they're sweating it off. They're working it off. Uh, there's not enough food to eat anyways, right, for, for those folks. So it's showing that, so it's showing that really that <clears throat> this guy, um, he, he's, he's a man of, of many means. Uh, he is a man... Uh, that lives a life of luxury. Fatness may also mean kind of like a dullness of mind, like he's not very smart. You, you've seen the cartoons, uh, fat guys on cartoons, they're kind of like goofy, uh, goobers, kind of like jokes, like they make jokes about them. Uh, maybe, the, maybe there's something to say about that, that he wasn't the brightest of persons. Um, but probably the most obvious reason it's mentioned is later on when we see his assassination, understanding that he is a fat man, it helps give us a picture of what is happening. Uh, but I think the point here is this picture of this caricature. He's lazy. He's indulgent. Uh, he's not very smart. He's fat. You get the picture. Uh, that's King Eglon. Verse 18, And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, <clears throat> I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. 
Okay, so, so verse 18, Ehud brings the tribute of the king, but on the way out of the city, Ehud stops at the idols of Gilgal. Uh, we don't exactly know what that is, but we do know that those idols are representing the gods of the land, and most likely they would have been kind of set up as a border um, around the realm of the king, uh, his special place. It's kind of like a gateway of his realm, uh, you would have to walk through this gateway to get in. And it was a message to all who would come in that, that these are the guys who are watching over us. All right, these, these idols, they are here. They are protecting us. They are providing security, safety. Um, that's what these idols are there for. So we can see that Ehud accompanies his attendants to a safe place until they are out of the realm. And then he returns to go back to the palace to carry out the work that God has for him. Now let's look at verse 20. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, and he did not pull his sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Josiah is looking at me so crazy right now. Keep listening. Um, so this is kind of a graphic, uh, kind of a comical um, retelling of this all in one. I think we see Eglon the king in his upper chamber, most likely what was his throne room, uh, the, the, this, this upper chamber. But after the king dismisses his attendants, he is getting this secret message. He's excited about it. Ehud moves closer to the throne room, and then he informs the king again. He says, I have a message, but it's not a secret message. It's a message from the gods. That's even better, right? So the king is excited, and he kind of stands up, ready to receive this message. And you can kind of picture this. Ehud takes this as a moment of opportunity, charges up the steps to the king, and stabs the king so hard that the dagger goes all of the way into him. The handle and everything. And, 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 and that's gross, and that is intense. And guess what? It just shows that deliverance is not always pretty, right? Deliverance is not always pretty. The king, who we saw a few verses ago, he was strengthened by God to punish Israel, and now he is reduced to this disgusting pile of filth and fat. And, and I think there's something to say about that. Uh, verse 23, Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors and the roof chamber behind him and locked them. So Ehud, he, he's quick-witted here. He's quick-witted here. Verse 24, When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. So I think this must be a little restroom facility here for him. And, and they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and 
Uh, there lay their Lord dead on the floor. So apparently, like I said, the, the, the throne room had some facilities um, for, for the comfort of the king. And, and when the attendants uh, returned and saw that the doors were locked, they just assumed, you know, he's probably in the bathroom. He eats a lot, right? Uh, but again, this is, this is still kind of comical. You can picture them standing there awkwardly like, you know, is he all right? Um, well, what, what in the world is, is going on? You know, big meal, right? Um, they finally unlock the door for themselves and find a dead king on the floor. Verse 26, Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Epaphram. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. All right? So this was no easy, simple task. So Ehud escapes the palace uh, while the attendants were distracted by waiting on the king. And notice this one. He runs past the idols. Same place he had turned back to before. At this gateway, he just runs past. These idols were set up as guards. They were set up as protectors for the king. But as the assassin runs past, they don't do anything to him. These idols do not protect the king, right? As lifeless, um, they, they, they just sit there. They just sit there as lifeless as the king that they were carved to protect. And, and how often um, do we put our hope, uh, our joy, how often do we take comfort in, do we take peace in lifeless idols? Maybe not statues that are carved up, but maybe money or relationships or our job or um, our identity, our status, um, our family, you name it, right? Um, we don't need to find security in those things. If you do, if we do, we need to know that those things cannot save us. They didn't save this king. They just sat there. Then Ehud, he gets back up. Uh, he rallies uh, the troop of Israel, and they attack, and they destroy the kingless Moabites. And that's step five. The oppressing nation is overcome. A nation of strong and able-bodied men is what it says, as you can notice in that last phrase. And it says, not even one man escaped. And that's 10,000. 10,000 destroyed. When the Lord, you know, I was thinking, when the Lord delivers, he does it completely. It's always complete. It's always full, right? He doesn't do the half-hearted stuff that we do. It's always full. Verse 30, let's look at verse 30. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. There's step six. 
All right, that's rest. There's rest in the land. That's step six. And this time it's 80 years. Not just one generation, but two generations. That's a long time of rest, but it's also a long time for them to forget again and to start the cycle back over again. But instead of another cycle, we get verse 31. Verse 31, last verse. And after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. So what's going on here? I put a lot of work into this seven-step cycle, and, and, and then we're going to see it happen again, but no. Uh, so, so why is this here, and why is this record uh, so short? Uh, maybe there wasn't much to say about Shamgar. Uh, he appears for a moment and accomplishes this task. Uh, but I think the real question is, who is this son of Anath? Anath is a, is a goddess of the Canaanite pantheon. Uh, and this is actually a false god. Shamgar wasn't even an Israelite. He was a foreigner. But he was used by God to deliver the people. Talk about an unexpected deliverer. And it shows, and I think this is what we're, what, what we're going to see throughout the book of Judges, it shows that God uses unexpected agents and, and unexpected means to accomplish an unexpected deliverance, right? An unexpected agent, to, um, an unexpected means to accomplish unexpected deliverance. And I think Judges shows us where we were, right? Where we were in the garden. Uh, our, our parents, Adam and Eve, uh, they sinned and God gave them over to their sin. And, and, human, and, and mankind cried out. And, and what did God give? God gave them a law, the law of Moses. Uh, what did God give the people uh, of Israel? He gave them prophets. He gave them priests. He gave them a king. And none of that worked, right? None of that worked until um, in an unexpected time, in, an unexpected, in unexpected circumstances, what did God provide? An unexpected deliverer in Jesus Christ. Right? No one expected him to come in and do uh, what he was going to do, how he was going to do it, uh, but that's how God decided it. And, and, and guess what? Um, he did it perfectly. Right? He do, Jesus doesn't provide us with rest for a generation or with rest for two generations uh, because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus uh, we can have not rest for 40 years, but we can have eternal rest. And we don't have security for 40 years. We have eternal security. We don't have protection for our souls for a couple of generations. Uh, we have protection for our souls for eternity. So I pray as we continue to study through Judges, we see that this is really a microcosm of our Christian life and, and that God has done everything needed to be done to accomplish salvation for us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you uh, for him uh, completely and fully accomplishing salvation for us. We thank you that you hear us when we cry out to you and that you deliver us uh, from our sin. I pray that we would cry out to you more. I pray that we would cry out to you uh, in our time of need, in our pain, in our suffering. Uh, but I pray that, that it would be a continual thing, that we wouldn't forget, 
that, that we wouldn't forget your faithfulness, that we wouldn't forget uh, what you have done for us, uh, that we wouldn't forget um, who the person and work of Jesus is, um, who he is to us, uh, what he's done, what he is doing, and what he will do. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.